Okay, Mark 9 from verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one these things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this incredible passage this morning, we pray that you would help us see it with fresh eyes, not presuming to know everything here, which we could never do anyway. Help us to learn, to learn well, and to grow in confidence in you because of what we see here today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the Bible, you can't argue that one part is more important than another. Uh, The book of Colossians tells us that it's all breathed out by God and he's useful for teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. This is all, every single word we read in the Bible, it all comes direct from God. That alone is incredible. That said, there are in the unfolding of the Bible certain what we would call high points which probably grab our attention a little bit more than others. Moments that are absolutely incredible, astounding moments that are breathtaking, even in the middle of what is a collection of every single word being awe-inspiring, there is still these moments of even more breathtakingness than the rest of it. The cross, which Jesus has been foreshadowing for a little while now, is one of those moments. If you're reading through the book of Romans and you get to chapter 8, You see so many threads pulled together there by Paul that it really does serve to be a high point within that book of Romans. Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 13, I think um, arguably verses 2 to 8 maybe stands a bit higher than the rest, uh, another one of these incredible, amazing high point passages. Now when I preached through uh, 2 Peter uh, last year, I believe it was, in chapter 1 verse 18, Peter there refers back to to being on the mountain, to seeing these things happen. He talks about the transfiguration there. Now, when I preached on that, I described that event with a phrase I borrowed from many others who have gone before me as a shock and awe moment. This transfiguration of Christ is this shock and awe moment. Now, what I mean by that 
Yes, shock and awe is a phrase used by primarily the United States military. It's just a, a catch-all phrase to describe something where they use an overpowering demonstration of force that the display of force alone pretty much wins the battle that they're engaged in for them. Now, there's no perfect illustration, but I'm going to stick with this one. That what we see here is shock and awe. It's mind-blowing. We see in verse 6 the response is one driven by fear of seeing this incredible revelation of Christ's glory. Now, that's a lot of high-level stuff. We need to dial it back a little bit and dive in from the start. Now, for a little while now, Mark tells us for, for six days in verse 2, Jesus and his disciples have been hanging out around Caesarea Philippi. If you've been with us for the last two weeks, you'll, I hope, remember some of the stuff I've said. One of them being that this was a town built to honour a previous Roman Caesar as a god, or at the very least, a demigod among the, the Roman pantheon of gods. Now, I've been saying that because we've been building to this high point. It's with this town declaring that a man could be a god with no lasting impact of his works other than a town named after him that Jesus has been ministering. Now these towns, uh, particularly the ones who had these very Roman names given to them, while this one was in Israel, would have had a, a reasonably decent chunk of retired Roman soldiers living there. The villages around it probably had more of the, the Jews living there. The town itself was probably more of a town for retired Roman soldiers, their servants and, and other officials who were nearing the end of their usefulness to the Roman Empire but were still honoured enough to live there. But all of these people here, just like us, need to understand the incredible gap that exists between Jesus and every single other person who has walked the face of the earth. It's no accident that this transfiguration flies in the face of the name of this town and the reason this town has the name that it does. So when Mark tells us Jesus has been there for six days, he doesn't give us a whole heap more details about what Jesus has been doing there. Maybe we go, we would like to know some more specifics about what happened on this day, this happened on day two, this happened. But what we have seen up till now and what we see through Mark's style of writing is that when Jesus does something different or unique, he certainly points it out. When Jesus takes time out to rest, Mark tells us Jesus has taken time out to rest. What Jesus has been doing is the things he's been doing up until now. Teaching, healing, showing people that the kingdom of God is at hand and that they need to repent of their sin. This is what Jesus has been doing. All the stuff he's been doing for the eight chapters up to this point. His ministry is continuing in this region. And it's now having an impact on this area surrounding a town named after, uh, to, to honour a man as a god. In this place of a declaration of a false god, the real god is being revealed. And Jesus has been revealing God to them for six days. Again, the geographical location should add emphasis to what Jesus is doing. And after those six days, Jesus takes Peter and James and John. And James and John were brothers, if you remember back to the early stuff of Mark. And they head up a mountain together. 
Now, these three, Peter, James and John, are often spoken about as being the inner circle. You've got many disciples following Jesus. Then you have the 12 apostles who are closer to Jesus than the rest of the disciples. And out of those 12, there seems to be an even greater level of closeness between Jesus and Peter, James and John. It's the way it's presented to us in the Bible. It's just what it is. So these three go up this mountain with Jesus. And God mountain with Jesus, and in verse 2, the very end, he was transfigured before them. Mark just puts it that simply there, doesn't he? Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, you might be wondering, what does that look like? What does that mean? Fortunately, Mark goes into a little bit more detail. Verse 3, his clothes shone. They became exceedingly white. Like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Have you ever seen something white catch the sun or the sun catch something white? Reflects it, doesn't it? After our wedding, though, uh, we had a, a, a messy eater. And Anna and I have been doing the rounds of our guests and uh, we put Anna's uh, wedding dress into the dry cleaners. And there are a few marks on it from these guests who were sort of waving the forks around while they were talking. And the, the dry cleaner said, uh, we, we can get it pretty much back to what it was, but there's only a limit to what we can do. These spots, we probably can't get it back to exactly the level of whiteness it was before. We shouldn't be surprised, it's no exaggeration, that there's a limit to what launderers can do. But what Mark is showing us here is there is something more than what they could have just come up with here. Jesus' clothes becoming this white, aren't they stopped at the dry cleaner halfway up the mountain? They didn't shrink at the dry cleaner amazingly. They just became whiter than anything else. No, this is an amazing, this is a divine thing taking place here. What Jesus' clothes became with their whiteness was beyond any level of white that we can imagine. And another thing with the, the white, which Anna and I hadn't considered before, our wedding was when we met with the photographer in the church we were married at we had some high set louvers on the western side of the church and we were told if Anna arrives after a certain point which wasn't good for my nerves there was a risk of the sun coming in catching the bottom of Anna's dress and the light just blowing out any other detail that might be captured in the photo the photos just come up as white Uh, Anna's mum according to eyewitness accounts, was washing dishes. A bit slow getting in the cars for Anna to come down to the church. She was about 25 minutes late. My nerves weren't great. The photographer's nerves weren't great. He thought the photos would be ruined of our wedding ceremony. Made it with about five minutes to spare. Now, we hadn't considered that. But we see brilliance in the white and the way the sun hits it. But what Mark's describing here is more than anything we've seen. It's more than any of those things. It goes steps, it goes levels beyond that. This brilliance on display is just breathtaking. On top of this mountain that Jesus went up with Peter and James and John, something happened that went beyond anything that we had seen in Jesus' life and ministry up to this point. This is a real highlight. Jesus has said, to prove I can forgive sins, I say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, and the paralyzed man got up and walked. Jesus calmed storms. He has cast out demon after demon after demon. He has healed all manner of things. But this event stands apart because this 
is a revelation of some of the holiness of God and it is astounding even this portion and these three guys they got to see it they were eyewitnesses to this event taking place now there had been a lot of discussion surrounding Jesus' ministry particularly from his opposition as to, to where he came from what, by what authority does Jesus do and say the things that he is doing and saying? Jesus has answered those questions very clearly. He comes from God. He is doing the will of the Father. But the accusation, one Jesus had proven wrong, that he was working for Satan, may have still been lingering in some minds. Now, while there's only three human witnesses to this, the further events we see here, not just the brilliance of the holiness of God on display here. But the presence of Elijah and Moses go a very long way to confirming that Jesus truly is doing the Father's will. He's not a bad guy pretending to be a good guy like some people would make out. He is truly doing the will of his heavenly Father. Now we might look at this and go, why, why were Elijah and Moses just there? Of all the saints who had gone before, why these two? Were they just the first two that God the Father could find who had a free moment in heaven? So we'll send them. Now, there's a reason these two appeared. There's a reason they were there on the mountain of transfiguration. While Moses is arguably the, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Moses is the one that the law was given to in Israel. And Elijah, other than Moses, is probably the next greatest prophet. But they represent things, don't they? We have Moses who seems to be representing the law and Elijah who stands here representing the prophets. Now, why do those things matter? Well, it not only confirms that, that Jesus is from God. These guys could not be there if Jesus was not from God. If this was God's holiness on display, they could not be there. It also confirms, as we're going to learn more of Christ as we continue through Mark's gospel, he is there to perfectly uphold the law. That is why Moses, the one who represents the law, is there to show Jesus is going to perfectly uphold the law and Elijah is there to show that Jesus is going to perfectly fulfill every single prophecy and particularly the messianic prophecies that God has given. These aren't randomly selected guys. They are there to highlight at this high point of Mark incredible lessons about who Christ is and what he is doing and what he does. And for us now, what he did as we look back on him. Now, sometimes in going into details and analysing things, we can lose sight of the wonder. Remember, this is a shock and awe event. Absolute brilliance. Holiness on display here. But the lesson isn't quite picked up yet by Peter and James and John. We see in verse 5, Peter pipes up. It's good for us to be here. Peter, you're right, it is good for you to be here. But then he keeps going, why don't I build you? I prefer the translations that say hut rather than tabernacle. So I'm going to go with that now. 
why don't I build you three huts? I'll build one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Why did Peter say that? I think Peter's a guy who, if you were catching up with him, and there was any measure of silence, he'd be uncomfortable and have to fill it. Oh, this is a bit scary, this moment of silence. I have to fill the silence, I have to say something. So not only is that likely Peter's personality, which we've seen coming through, this doesn't make sense what he says here. It doesn't fit the context of what's happening. And verse 6 tells us that this revelation of God's holiness made them greatly afraid. They were greatly afraid because how could mortal beings like us Look at the holiness of God, even in this small portion, because again, Exodus 33 tells us we can't look at the whole holiness of God. How could we look at the holiness of God and ever think, hey, we're okay, we're doing well, aren't we great people? We realise how far away from that we are in our hearts. We realise the holiness of God and our unholiness. And again, this wasn't even the fullness of God's glory. And there's more. Verse 7, a cloud passed overhead and a voice said, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when he says, hear him, this is God the Father speaking about God the Son, again confirming Jesus is from God. When the Father says, hear him, it's not just listen, turn up, be there when Jesus is speaking. It's listen, obey, put these things in your heart and do them. God the Father commands this. And if hearing Jesus truly does mean, which I 100% believe it does, listening, obeying, treasuring his words in our heart, that should put the, context, put the idea of not listening to Jesus into a very scary context for us. Just like last week with the one who's ashamed of Jesus, will the Son of Man will be ashamed of him at his return? A similar level comes through here. We can either hear Jesus and be associated with Christ, with the one who is perfectly holy, the one who is going to and did and has kept the law for us and fulfilled the prophecies regarding salvation for us, or we can ignore him and have no protection from God's wrath because our sins are not paid for because we have been disobedient. There is no middle ground. We are either faithful or we are unfaithful. But after this, after this voice from heaven, which again shows us that the three persons of the Trinity are not the one person. They're three distinct persons of the Trinity. At Jesus' baptism, we saw the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we just see the Son and the Father, but they are distinct, unique persons. His voice speaks. Verse 8, the three guys there looked around, and there was only Jesus with them it was over very very quickly 
So they head back down the mountain. And on the way down the mountain, Jesus tells these men, don't, don't tell people what's happened. Now, maybe we've got a lot of questions that are unanswered at this point in time. What, why only these three guys? Why not tell people about these things until Jesus had raised from the dead? And we see here, uh, verse 10, they questioned among themselves what the rising from the dead meant. They still didn't want to think this was literal. They're trying to think of it in ways that are anything other than Jesus going to die and raise back from, uh, from the de- be raised back from the dead. They don't want to acknowledge that yet. But why not tell people until Christ's resurrection? Now, Jesus isn't just saying these things. And he goes on to say more about the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. He's not saying these things to scare people off. He's giving people hope. He's showing his disciples that Jesus is not going to be beaten by death. He's not only going to defeat sin when he dies on the cross, but he'll defeat death when he's raised back to life. So why these three guys? Well, as I've said at least twice now, these guys were the closest to Jesus among the apostles. There's a common thought that they saw the transfiguration, not only because they were close to Christ, but because of what they would go on to do in their service to Jesus. They would face hard lives in very different ways. James would be killed not long after Jesus' death and resurrection for believing and proclaiming the truth about Christ. Peter would be hung on his own cross to die. But he said that if being hung on the cross with his head the right way up was how Christ died, and that's too good for him, so he was on his cross upside down. A horrific thing. John was able to live a long life, but he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now we might think, well, that sounds like a nice Greek getaway island. This was a slave island. They all faced incredibly difficult lives in service to Christ. This event would encourage them enormously in their lives of service, whether long or short. Now, I agree with John Calvin that there's probably more to it than that. John Calvin, in his commentary on this, says, if this is to to encourage these guys in their continued service, why were not the rest of the 12 there with them? They all had a tough road ahead, bar Judas, who betrayed Christ, and could have equally used the encouragement of seeing this transfiguration. Now, I don't think this negates that this bolstered their faith, but I simply don't think we have any more to go on than this. Sometimes God works in mysterious ways, and this might just be one of them. I think we can understand some of it, but not the entirety of it. And that's one of our questions we're going to have to ask when we get to heaven. And they were to tell people about this after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, Jesus just says after he's raised from the dead, but to be raised from the dead, he first has to die. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, these guys are to tell people about this, to say, you know what? This might seem unbelievable. This might seem unbelievable that Jesus, who was dead, who died on the cross, who was speared in the side, his blood ran out as both blood and water. Evidence that he physically died on the cross. The Romans saw that. The Romans guarded his tomb for three days. He was dead. He was buried. He was in the ground. He was raised back to life. Maybe that just seems too much because no normal man does that. 
And these guys now are eyewitnesses to something that says Jesus truly is more than just man. They've seen so much in his teaching, so much in his ministry that show he is not just a man. He is God. But these three now say we have more proof. Jesus asked us to wait until you most needed to hear this. He is divine. We saw it for ourselves. We saw Elijah and Moses there with him. We heard the voice of God the Father. And now that Christ is indeed risen, let us share this awesome, encouraging news with you. Mark's gospel is not the account of a man who did some unique things. This is the account of God who lived and died to save us from sin and death. But there's still perhaps more questions. Doesn't Elijah need to come first? Jesus' claim to divinity here seems to be the apostles, these three guys in particular, they're thinking it through. They're starting to move from a place of just being along for the ride to truly engaging it with trying to understand what's happening. Okay, so if this is Messiah, then you go, how could they argue that after what they've just seen? But for some people, it's a slow realisation. So if this is the Messiah... We know from God's word that Elijah must come first. Well, what, why? How? What? There's a sense of confusion that they put forward here. Well, think about Elijah. His life, his place of, will, uh, of residence out in the wilderness, his diet, his wardrobe, and then think of John the Baptist. The two are incredibly similar, aren't they? Both in dress, diet, residence, even just their ministry style and approach. I think this is why Jesus says in verse 13, Elijah has come. And something even further to note, I should have written it down, but Matthew chapter 11, I believe it's verses 13 and 14, Jesus says there, if anyone wants to receive it, they will receive that Elijah has come. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but Jesus directly says there that John the Baptist was Elijah come the second time. So Elijah has come. The Jews were, were waiting. Okay, we, we've got this perhaps barrier to believing that Jesus is the Messiah because Elijah needs to come first, but Elijah has come. There's one less reason for them now to deny that Christ is the Messiah who has promised to save people. Now, we've been camping out 2,000 years ago at this incredible event up to now. So in all of this, we need to stop now in this room today and ask ourselves what we actually think of all of this. Well, what do we make of all of this? We know what Mark thinks. Mark wasn't there for these things. But Mark received eyewitness accounts to construct this gospel account. He heard from one or all of Peter and James and John. They really think and bear testimony to the fact that Jesus was transfigured on this mountain. That he really is the eternal Son of God come to save people from sin who will rise again as proof that sin and death are defeated in and by him alone. So it raises questions, who is Jesus to you? 
Is Jesus just this intriguing figure from history? Maybe we think that Jesus isn't just a figure from history, but a a compilation of different threads of people's lives tied together in one. Is Jesus just a purveyor of morality? Did he just show people how to live good ethical lives? Or is he the saviour of your soul? These are the questions that this awe-inspiring high point of Mark's gospel should be driving us toward. As we think about it, Jesus' brilliance, the holiness of God, our unholiness and messiness from our own sin, we should be thankful, eternally thankful and grateful that there is somebody who can bridge the gap between God and us, who can restore us to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for having it in a language that we can read and understand. As we finish looking at just these few verses here, we perhaps have more questions. We perhaps have questions that we haven't been able to dive into today. There is just so much here. Yet we pray, we pray, O oh God, that your spirit would grant us understanding and comfort and bring us, if we haven't already been brought to that point of believing that Christ is God, that Christ is our saviour and committing all that we have to following him. And Lord God, if we have that faith already, strengthen our confidence, encourage us, and equip us to do everything that you have in store for us, not being ashamed of anything because we have such a glorious, awesome, and mighty God. Amen.